What follows is part one of a multi-part, maybe five or six installments called Social Marketing Kung Fu. This installment, like most of the rest, was recorded at a special workshop I held for an invited group of entrepreneurs doing various startups, from software to breweries, to distilleries, to music labels, to bike building companies, and so on. And this was designed for me to give me an opportunity to share all my various experience of tactics and ideas and thoughts and soliloquies, as it were, about building story, building brand through community and genuine, dare I say, authentic outreach. Now, I will say that this was just recorded kind of ad hoc and the audio does jump around a little bit. I've tried to clean it up as best as I could, but your mileage may vary. All that said, the stories and advice I feel are fairly relevant. This was recorded in May 2013. At the time I worked for a company called Hootsuite, so I will say that the opinions I express therein, uh, while sometimes I talk about Hootsuite, are just my own experience and opinions and don't reflect any company, blah, 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 as well as any other company that I met mentioned. So, with that in mind, this first installment is about starting your story, meaning taking that idea and putting that you have and putting some context around it and doing the very basic things that it takes to put a foundation under your project to make it ready for the long haul, built to last. So with that in mind, social marketing, kung fu, part one, starting your story, fondly, comma, Dave. So, when we talk about startups, what is it that we mean by startups? The myth of startups has kind of been mutated into something that very specifically talks about technology companies. And this culture that goes around with these technology companies where startup entrepreneurs have become like the new heroes, because look at all that money they just make out of nowhere. The Mark Zuckerberg, he rules the world. Would you trade places with Mark Zuckerberg? What do you think his life is? Do you think it's funner than yours? Do you think it's more interesting? Do you think he has more things to go home to than you do? Do you think when he goes home from work, his life is way more interesting than yours? So I, take the, I, so I got your answer. <laughs> Right? Let's say Mark Zuckerberg wanted to pack up and go to India and go traipse around India. Had that crazy idea. Do you think he'd be able to? <laughs> one by one, I will destroy each of you throughout today's program. Do you think Mark Zuckerberg's life is more interesting? You see that movie, Social Network? Okay, first of all, that was a waste of everyone's time. Uh, second of all, when a company hits one million users, it doesn't look anything like that. When Hootsuite hit, hit one million users, we got out a 12-pack um, of warm Pacific beer um, because we hit a million before we thought we would, so the beer wasn't cold. And also, someone had the idea to buy cheap canned beer. Um, it's turned into a tradition now. Every one million landmark, we uh, shotgun uh, cheap, warm, canned beer. <laughs> Uh, PBR has uh, become the sponsor. I'm not in favor of any of these ideas. But I prefer that to the ridiculousness of people icing each other. Does anyone think that's interesting? No, lame. So when I think about startups, when I think about startups, I really mean this as a, at a much broader sense. Any kind of business, any kind of project, any kind of organization, any kind of idea, any kind of art project, jump in wherever you need to. I'll try not to body check you. Um, you know, this shirt, I, this was almost $2. I don't want to get any coffee on it. Because <laughs> I will spill my own on it. Um, so on a very macro level, I like this idea of any kind of project that you take from idea to execution that becomes a thing that other people interact with. So this is a very general definition. This isn't, I hate it when talks are like, let's talk about loyalty. The dictionary defines loyalty as, oh god, that's the, my pet peeve when talks. So I'm going to make up my own definition. That's a working definition for this. So any kind of thing where you're taking it from idea to execution and bringing other people into it, that's what I'm talking about when we talk about startups. 
And once you have this crazy idea, and you and the other two legs of your tripod have gathered together with your napkin and your Sharpie, because you all always have a Sharpie in your pocket, right? It's very important. You never know when the ideas are going to be ready. You, don't have, you can't wait for your computer to boot up and open up Notepad. Anyone who works for me knows that you better have a paper and a pen handy at all times, because I will come in in the middle of the sentence and expect you to be capturing all of it because you never know when the idea is going to come. For me, it comes on walks in the woods. It comes, at random, it comes at random moments. You have to be ready to capture those things. And once you have that idea, you have to be prepared to start unraveling it and giving it meaning. So this brings us to our white belt, which is starting your story. I said at the beginning that oftentimes, technical domain expertise dude and business lady get together and they forget to start telling the story or else they do the equally ridiculous idea of saying, oh, we're a stealth startup. We can't tell anyone what we're doing until it's too late and we're out of business. Then we can tell people what we were gonna do. It's different. These things happen very, very quickly. You don't have years to take your idea from idea to execution if you wanna make any money. Because in a, if you take years, the entire market will change, the technologies will change, your interests will likely change, your co-conspirators will maybe have different ideas. So your ideas have a very short shelf life in this fast-paced, technology-driven age. So you need to, from day one, from the day that you make that napkin sketch, you need to start preparing to share and spread your story. So what does that mean? Well, the word brand is quickly joining synergy, leverage, community, disruptive, innovative into that dead pile of words that have lost their meaning. Because brand, so many people think of brand as a product. They think of a brand as a logo. They think of a brand as a company. It's none of these things. The brand is the culture that you create out of these things. And it's your job as the storyteller for your company to give meaning to this brand. So, how do you start this? First of all, you do not wait till you have a product or, some, or a deliverable or an MVP, minimal viable product, to start putting these things together. Also, at this point, you absolutely do not talk to a consultant or an agency. You can talk to advisors. Advisors are wonderful. You can talk to friends. You can talk to people who um, have some, some uh, appreciation for your passion and interest or for your track record or have noticed something in you that they say, kid, you got some moxie. Great, talk to those people. Don't talk to consultants, agencies, or your family at this point. Your family are going to hear all about your fucking project until they're sick of it over and over and over again. And it will not foster good relationships with your family if you rely on them to be your audience and to be your sounding board because their tensions and their passions and their concerns about your crazy idea are much different than yours are and much different than your partners are and much different than when your audiences are. So the first thing you've got to do is figure out what the fuck it is that you're really doing because you've done your little napkin sketch and you have your widget that you're going to sell and the way you're going to sell it and the plan that you're going to get the money to get to that point, and you figured out you're going to somehow survive on $20,000 a year until you start making money, and you made your projections about all this money that you think you're going to make but you're not really going to make, and then you've taken the time to temper those expectations so they're somewhat realistic, and then that euphoria of your napkin sketch starts to fade. Holy fuck, we're really doing this, hey? At a certain point, you have to start cutting the cloth. You have to start quitting your job that you have now at Starbucks, Oh, that's actually the best part of the whole thing. Um, you, have to, you have to start weaning yourself off of those consulting gigs. You have to start figuring out how you're going to do two jobs at once because on one hand, you're trying to get your startup going and bring meaning to this idea that you have. On the other hand, you're still trying to pay your bills. And it's really easy to get caught in this death spiral of too many possibilities. So instead, as soon as you get to this point and you start feeling that Adrenaline starting to fade. This is a very powerful time for you because this gives you a chance to focus and drill down to just the things you critically need to do to get this thing up and out the door and build an audience. 
Now, there's going to be so many different things you think, what we could do, what we could do, what we could do, and you start thinking a year, year and a half down the thing. Well, by then, we'll have 15 different kinds. Well, by then, we'll be distributed in 43 countries. No. Do not think about those things yet. Drill it down to the things that you can control, and they're the critical things for you to sell product one. Because product one, customer one, is a bitch. Actually, I shouldn't say bitch, because I always use bitch with that mean lady. Is a real challenge. It's a significant challenge. It's a big milestone for you getting the product one or customer one out the door. But if you wait till your software is ready, till you wait till your first bottle of whiskey is ready, if you wait till your first keg of beer, if you wait till your band's first album is out, you have waited too long to build your audience and build your story. So, first of all, you need to decide who you are. You need a thing to call this thing that you're doing. And the first name that you come in that comes into your head and you that's your working title social marketing kung fu in this case in the Hootsuite's case uh, Cheesebone was the original code name for a Hootsuite before it was actually born then they said oh we need an actual name for it and they picked a name that was too close to another thing so then they had to change it again and starting it and changing your name is a real pain in the ass so you seriously want to avoid this and we're going to talk more about picking your brand name and all that but the number one thing on your list is you got to pick something to call this thing because once you declare yourself out to the universe with a name that is the thing, the catalyst, that starts allowing people to contribute to your culture. Now, remember I talked about being a mushroom farmer in Japan. And the shiitake mushroom logs, um, have you ever seen shiitake grow and they grow out of logs and they look really weird? The way this works is you inoculate the culture. You put the culture, these little pellets of culture, in the first log. And you kind of dig out a chunk of wood and you put this plug of culture in. And then nothing happens for a couple of years. But there is something happening. That culture is growing and expanding within that log, and then you lean that log up against the next log, and that culture moves to that next log, and the next log, and the next log, and the next log, and the next log. And you see these giant trains of logs winding their way through the woods, and that culture is passed on from the one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. This is what you need to build, except instead of logs, you need to do this with humans. These first humans are your advisors, are your friends, are these people that care about you? These people that you can get some advice from? Um, and people you can bounce ideas off of. But do not become dependent on these people because if you do not have this vision very clearly defined in your head of what you really want to do, then A, you're letting someone hijack your dreams, and B, you're going to get burnt out because you're doing someone else's work rather than the thing that you really, really wanted to do. Now, your idea may be better with the advice of someone else, but it's no longer your idea. Sure, you want to collaborate, but you need to stay true to that kernel of interest that you promised to yourself and that while you're taking the risk to quit your job, change your life, live cheaply, move into a crappy basement apartment so you can make this happen. So if it's not yours, all of a sudden you start feeling disenfranchised. You start feeling like an employee. You start feeling like this is a job. And you didn't do a startup to make this feeling like you have a job. You want to be in there and you want to foster that passion because that's the thing that's going to make this take off. So step one is you need to come up with a name. Now sometimes it seems like putting the cart before the horse, but if you wait too long to come up with your name, well we'll wait till we have product one and then we'll get an advisory board committee and a consultant and they'll help us come up with a name and they'll give us 43 different versions. No. Give it a name. It's your thing. You name it. Uh, when you have a child, do you outsource the naming of the child? Nobody does that. Do they? Maybe there is. Ooh, there's a startup idea. We'll name your baby for you.com. Crowdsource baby names. Quick. Actually, I got to go. I got a new idea. And then you need to define what it is that you're doing. This isn't your mission statement. Probably be another belt in here about the uselessness of mission statements. You need to describe what it is that you're trying to accomplish. You need to start putting out your own mile, uh, signposts and milestones or whatever you want to call them to say this is what we're trying to accomplish. Not six years from now, what you're trying to accomplish three months from now. Three months is the magic number. If you plan too much more than three months out, there's too much randomness out there, good random, bad random, that can happen to impact your decision. So plan and describe what it is that you're going to have in three months, maybe six months. So to figure out what it is, to describe what it is, I start by creating a vocabulary. 
a list of words that kind of hang out around, around, hang out around the fringes of what it is that I'm trying to create. And this is, uh, this is something that's best done in somewhere that you, you're able to f find inspiration. So you, all of us have some activity that we do that where the kind of the, allows our brain to kind of go into neutral so the subconscious can take over and all that goodness can come. For me, it's walking in the woods or doing whatever it is that you do to get to that point. And then I start with a notebook. And I start just writing words in a notebook, usually with a Sharpie, not overthinking it, not trying to craft them into sentences, not trying to wordsmith it, just putting words in there that might feel, that are evocative to the feeling, that kind of start to capture. Because what these words are and what this description is, is going to be things that are going to get other people on board. When you come up with a brand name, we'll talk more about this. First rule is it's got to be easy, to, it's got to be easy and fun to say and relatively easy to spell. A great example of confusing thing to spell, Hootsuite, especially in international markets. But on my first week at Hootsuite, um, because there was a brand and an owl sticker and an owl logo and 100,000 customers and some developers. So I went in and out of my list, I made a 10 word, 25 word, a 50 word and a 100 word description that also serves as a media boilerplate. I wanted to avoid jargon, technical buzzwords, douchey business buzzwords, uh, and make it something that people's moms could understand. But also still captures what it is that makes you unique. Because there are no new ideas. And this is why, you know, when people say they have their stealth startup, it's like ideas are easy, man. It's the execution that's hard. So if you get out in front of that and declare to the world that this is what we're going to build, three months from now, bottle one of Sons of Vancouver Distillery is going to roll off the shell, roll off the assembly line and going to be available for sale. And what is it that you're doing? The things that make your gig special is it's going to be artisan crafted, local ingredients made by weirdos, etc. right? The liquor stores are vast and abundant and there's many varieties of liquor that are available for purchase. What's going to make yours special? Now, the business guys would say, what's your secret sauce? But I'm sick of hearing VCs say that, so I won't say it. Instead, what makes your thing special? What makes it unique? Why would someone care about that? And then what this brings you to is why would someone participate in your culture? Because people want to be part of your dream and part of your big vision. They can go buy a bottle of whatever they want. Why would they buy yours instead? Well, there's things that are obvious. Well, ours might taste better. But remember what I said about the wine houses? Yeah, you're all within a point or two of quality of each other. It's the story and the culture. So start by capturing that thread that connects the potential customer emotionally to your thing and your passion. And those are the words you need to capture. Don't worry about wordsmithing it at first. Get the big vision, the broad brush strokes, and then start crafting that into something. I come up right away with a list of vocabulary, the way we talk about our, our products, the words we use, the words we don't use, the way we refer to ourselves. And, and Andy will remember this from Hootsuite where, you know, it was like in the early days, it's like the more money we started asking people for, the less cute owl words that we used, right? But we also have to figure out how to talk about a technology product that's essentially a thing that lives in a two-dimensional screen, but we need to talk about it in a way that creates an emotional response. It makes it a warm, fuzzy thing that people want to interact with. It's very, very difficult to do with software things. For something like uh, beer, that's a much more emotional response because like, as soon as you'd be, oh, get excited, I want to get, oh my god, I go to the liquor store, and I go to the liquor store, and there's 4,000 different kinds, and I know each one of them. And I check them in on untapped. It's so exciting. But software, fuck, that's way harder. All right, it's a thing that does something to help. Oh, it's really hard to use specific language. How do you refer to your users? Your well, they're not customers, they're not clients. Users, I, I, I've been having to use it, I've had to use this word for years and years. And it's, at first, it was kind of funny because it makes everyone sound like drug users, right? But users is a completely impersonal way to refer to these people. Well, how do we make it useful but without having this condescending customer? Uh, relationship. How do you make them feel like they're on the inside? These are the words that you need to start defining. You need to feel, make people feel like they are part of your club. Remember the Long Hairs Club? 
make people feel like they're part of your club. Now, from day one, you need to start setting up your presences and claim your namespace. It's absolutely critical. And this goes with all your Twitter handles and your URLs and all this kind of stuff. It's nothing more pathetic than seeing an established big company that had to use like a modified underscore abbreviation of their brand name because they, didn't, they waited too long to grab those handles. Or they get URLs that have hyphens or numbers in them. Um, or they haven't captured all those different things. They haven't captured the miscomment. If you are going to have a name that's easy to misspell, capture all those domains, capture those Twitter handles um, right from uh, day one. This is just your due diligence, and this is protecting your intellectual property from being hijacked and making things confusing. You need to make these funnels for your potential customers. You need to plant these seeds and lay these mousetraps, dig these tunnels, so three, six months from now, when you have bottle one ready to go or you have your software ready to launch, that there's all these different access points for people to get into your culture, no matter which way, where they're hanging out or what they're doing. So right away, you need to start claiming your space on these things and at least letting people know that you're coming soon. Maybe you put together a mailing list, sign up, some way that people can follow your progress. Because, like in, in my case, uh, right by my office, there's three breweries opening up right in, in my neighborhood. And I'm fucking excited. Right? And they all have their follow our progress at whatever, whatever, internet's thing, right? This is an invitation to say, we know you have questions, we know you want to get involved, so why don't you follow along? Let us know what you think. And so when they start shipping bottles or filling growlers, guess who will be right there in line because I'm following Twitter. And if they wait till bottle one and then say, oh, we'll get a Twitter handle, A, it's going to be gone, and B, it's too late. You, you, you lost all that lead time to build audience. And especially uh, you know, using the beer or liquor example, you're, you're in six, work, six months of paperwork hell with the city anyway. You might as well be using that time effectively to, uh, start, to start this story and start putting this stuff out there. So then you start putting your story out there to the people. And on day one, you make a media kit. And a media kit is a fancy page for what we used to call an about page. But it's an about page that actually has useful things in there. And what you're going to find as we go along that this is the page that makes it easy for people to share your story. On this page lives a few things. One, your logo. Because at this point, and we'll talk about this more, you've started to develop a logo. And you make this available in all sorts of different formats for people. JPEGs, EPS, grayscale, all those things. I think it's ridiculous that companies are so protected with the logo. Oh no, you have to send us and we'll send it to our designer and then we'll send it, we'll get permission from our PR department. No, you want people to use your logo because you get, you know what, if you don't make it available for download, A, they'll either not use it, or B, you're going to have to waste a bunch of designers' time, or C, they're going to screenshot or grab some old GIF from the internet and blob it on there and your stuff's going to look like crap. You want people to put your logo places, don't you? Yes, make it easy for them. And then you have, uh, you know, you've had a, you went and talked to a, a group at like uh, a chamber of commerce. Let's just say hypothetically, any of you were to go to a chamber of commerce meeting. I know because I've been to many, many of them. But you go there and you give some spiel and you're talking your thing. And then you need to give some, you find these, all these advocates and you start building this audience. But they need to have an easy way to tell their friends about what you're doing. And they're like, yeah, I was talking to this guy the other day and they're doing some, internet startup thing, it's something about some camera thing, and like, let's say you're on vacation and you need to talk to your kids, and then you, there's this camera, and it's like a thing, but it's like, stop. It's confusing for them. So what you do is you have a 10-word, 25, and a 50-word description that explains your company in your terms that anyone can use and copy and paste to be the thing that defines your story. Bicycles, what makes your bicycles different? That should be in your 10-word description. What are the things that are culturally and emotionally going to connect people to your product? Those are in your description. Then it's going to make it really easy as you start to garner media coverage, which we'll talk quite a bit about, that the media folks, because journalists, they're lovely, well-intentioned folks, but they're extremely time-constrained, and their industry is, is imploding on them, so they have a lot of other stresses besides trying to figure out and how to define your company. Your media kit page, that's going to do all that work for them. Then on this page, you talk about your founders, short bios, headshots, Yes, headshots. Yes, headshots. If you have a software product, have a tailored custom screenshot that shows something beautiful. Do you know what you do if, they don't, if you don't have one? People will do it themselves, and you'll have some screenshot, in our case with Hootsuite. We don't want any tweets showing up that have sent by TweetDeck on them. You know, we don't want anyone saying, uh, 
Hootsuite sucks. I can't believe this stupid tool, right? <laughs> you need to customize and filter that. Your pictures of, uh, of your bicycles, you want to have beautiful pictures of smiling users doing awesome shit on your bicycles that people can use. If they want to talk about your brand, they have all the assets right there. The logos, the headshots, the executive bios, um, how to contact for media opportunities, how to contact for speaking gigs, your timelines, your significant milestones, and that kind of stuff. Now, for example, at Hootsuite, this started off, I made this my first day or two on the job, just like a one page and a blog. Now it's evolved into like five pages because there's a whole page of just fucking owl art. Um, there's a page of logos, some brand guidelines. This is how not to spell our name. It's not SW. There's not a space in it. It's uppercase H, uppercase S. So it keeps all your brand consistent, right? If you tell the people how you'd like it done, it's going to save you a ton of time. It's going to get you more coverage because people can go easily craft that story, and it's going to keep that brand integrity in place. It's going to keep your URLs proper. It's going to keep all your Twitter handles and everything there because they have one clearinghouse to go and get all that information. Now, I talked a little bit about the name. Um, it is worth taste testing your name around your uh, friends and advisors and that kind of stuff. Do little blind uh, ABC tests. Throw three ideas out on them. See what they respond to. But I found more often than not, that first one that resonates with you is the one that's going to be the one that works. Don't overthink it. Don't obsess over it too much. If it feels right, that's probably it, man. You know? I will tell you, and I'll explain more about this as we go along, avoid uh, abbreviations, um, acronyms, and initializations. And avoid things that are too descriptive. Seems counterintuitive, but descriptions is for your 20-word description. It's not for your brand. Your brand, your brand name, is a thing that incubates and inoculates that culture that you're trying to create. All right, then you start thinking about the products that you're going to produce. Whether it's a service or a thing that you sell or a software thing, you have to be able to describe it in three words. Three words. More than that, well, you know, there's opportunities where you'll be able to describe it longer, but you need a way that you can say what it is that you do in three words. If you have these three powerful words, other people will say them over and over and over again. And the more times people can say these three words about your product, the more powerful it will become. Every time someone utters these three words, whether or not your brand name is associated with that or not, that is another mushroom spore moving to another log. And these three words shall become your mantra. This is what you're producing. Now, it may evolve along the way. When Hootsuite first started, it was professional Twitter client. I did not come up with those three words. Then I turned into social media dashboard. Then someone mutated into <coughs> social media management system. <sighs> Sorry. Pick the one that feels right to you and use it over and over and over again. Then, now that you've got your page up that has all your basics and your details, you start reaching out and sharing this stuff with other people. And this means that you start developing your media contacts, and, and your posse. And as you do that, you start listening and reacting to the way people react to the words that you say about yourself. And remember I said you're going to develop a vocabulary? You can say all the things you want about your description word. Disruptive, innovative, synergizing, larg, right? But it's way more important what anyone else says about you. Plus. You will have competitors in your industry. Whatever industry it is, you're probably going to have competitors. It's a pretty safe bet, right? So you start listening out there and see what the words people use to describe your thing rather than another thing. How do people talk about Russell beers compared to Hal Sound beer? Well, we're vaguely in the same thing. We're all, you know, uh, uh, cooperating frenemies or whatever, right? But how is it that the regular people differentiate between these different products? How is it that they tell their friends about why they purchase one thing rather than buying another thing? Why do people go with uh, Hootsuite instead of TweetDeck? Why do people buy my fanzine instead of the, the one called Terminally Stupid? That was our competitor frenemy thing, right? Now, a lot of the industries, especially as things are kind of small potatoes, you know, and the brewing is a great example, you know, and, and there's such a huge market that everyone has this common enemy in, in, in the brewing industry, like the smaller ones, and then the behemoths over here. And there's so much market share from the behemoths, and there's so much education that the breweries have figured out, if we all do this together, we're way more powerful because we are all chipping away at the same market share from the people who are like, give me a Canadian. I saw that commercial on TV, right? 
But you still have to start differentiating yourself about how you define your, your words and your competitors. Now, especially in the early days of Hootsuite, I listened obsessively to what people said about us and what they said about our competitors. And I noticed a couple things. One, people started calling us a social media Swiss Army knife, which was beautiful. But it's not something we can say ourselves because Swiss Army Knife, actually uh, Victoronix or whatever the company is, they're, they're a client now. Um, so we wouldn't want to upset them by using their intellectual property to describe our product. Plus, we need to chart our own course. So it's great for someone else to say that. And you start to see some brands like Xerox and Kleenex have become ubiquitous to describe that whole segment of products, right? That's an awesome Cadillac problem to have. But the other thing I noticed is people started saying, um, describing their product as, oh, we're like Hootsuite, but for bands. Oh, we're like Hootsuite, but for other industries and other kinds of uh, market segments, other kinds of tools, which is in some ways a real compliment, but in other ways you also have to watch that carefully to make sure there's, there's not confusion in the marketplace. But assemble a list of vocabulary that people use to, to talk about you, and then you get all geeky with, the, uh, with, the, with your Google Analytics, which is free uh, for the most part, and you start noticing the terms that people search for that leads, you to, that leads them to you. Now, I'm not someone who gets all like, uh, ooh, SEO and all that. You know, really, if you make your website properly and have good copywriting and, and, and all that takes care of itself, and if you build this audience where people have inbound links to you and all that, all that takes care of itself. But you can get some great intelligence by seeing what people search for and then what the total search volume for different things, uh, uh, different things are. And I mentioned at Movieset, I did um, that other company without <clears throat> that one. Uh, uh, I did, uh, you know, I did a lot of pandering, right? And with this Twilight movie, what do people search for when they're searching for Twilight? And I realized that the young man who was the actor in that movie, uh, Robert Pattinson, um, wow, there's sure a lot of ways to spell that last name, or so the common public thinks. So I optimize all these pages for all the misspellings of his name. I say, y'all can have Pattinson. I'll take all the other variations on that, right? And as a result, which all the long tail of that, the aggregate of second place to 100th place of spellings for his name was equal to the, someone, if someone is trying to dominate just that one thing, this actual spelling of his, uh, of his name. So by looking at the AdWords and uh, the, 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 the search traffic, the search traffic coming into you, and the aggregate search things, you'll start to get some more things, ways to add to your vocabulary. But use this as a secondary or even tertiary step after number one, express your passion. Number two, start listening out there and see what people say. Step three is start using the robots to help you out, meaning uh, look at Google and see what you can find from there. Okay, media kit artwork, logo, colors, typeface, trademarks, specific requirements to use, multiple descriptions, uh, colorful screenshots or infographics, awesome. Uh, okay, now you start telling people what it is that you're doing because you don't want to wait till your product launch when it's too late. So, you've got a media kit. Your next thing that you're going to do on your blog site thing, internet, is you're going to start declaring what it is that you're going to do and setting expectations. Hello world, in three months from now, your wait for quality hand-produced bicycle, beer, distillery, software will be met by us. This is why you should like us. This is who we are. This is what we're going to do. This is the reasons that you should believe that we could be successful. Won't you come along? The next week, wow, we're making great progress. Again, filling those breweries in the neighborhood is so exciting when they send out pictures. And these guys aren't really internet-y guys, right? But they've like, oh, they post a picture on, on Instagram and, and it's like, oh my God, they just brought in the new brew kettle. That's exciting. You can see the forward momentum frequently shared. It's critically important. Because ideas are easy, execution is hard. You need to convince your potential audience that you have the ability to execute. This is going to be critically important when you go try and raise money. This is going to be critically important when you need customers. And it's going to be super important when you need someone, to, when you get in a PR kerfuffle and you need buddies to come help you out and change that story. <clears throat> Thanks again. Media kits on the page. So if it didn't happen, if it's not on the internet, it didn't happen. From day one, you start telling these stories, you write, start writing these blog posts, but you distribute your content all over the place as best you can. Put your pictures on Flickr, put your shared links over here, put them there. Like people say, well, where do you put your stuff? Put it everywhere, right? 
It used to be in the Web 1.0 days, you have your website. It's an 800-pound gorilla. Now you have 80, 10-pound spider monkeys. Which would you take on in a fight, an 800-pound gorilla or 80, 10-pound spider monkeys? I think the 800-pound gorilla is easier to beat. 80, 10-pound spider monkeys, you take one down, man, they keep on coming at you, fuckers. So what I mean by that is don't just have one website. You have a blog, you have a Tumblr, you have a Facebook, you have a Twitter, you have a thing, you have a thing over here, you have Flickr, you're building up things. You have a trifold brochure, for Christ's sakes, man. You got swag, you have all these different access points into your culture. So no matter what way people want to interact with your brand, they have an avenue to do that. It's not about how you want them to interact with you, it's how they want to interact with you, and you better be there and you better be ready. Now, when everyone says, oh my God, I don't have time to do that. You know, I have to do this and this and this and this. Figure out how to have time, man. Because if you don't do these things, your business will not be as successful as it could be. And all of these things are free to do. You haven't spent any money yet, which is great. Maybe you can spend 25 bucks a year on a Flickr Pro account, 10 bucks a month for Hootsuite, or you hit me up and you know, like you get a 20% off. Or like, you know, none of this stuff is expensive, but it does take time and it takes love. Let us use the example of this lovely cup of coffee. There's three ingredients in here. There is coffee beans, there is water, and there is milk. But this is foamy and delicious and tasty, and it's got this little bit here that's like, oh, oh. Now, there's also a thing that's a cup of coffee. It has three ingredients, beans, water, milk. What's the difference between fancy, awesome coffee and cup of joe? Love. Love and hot air. Right? Hot air is free. Yes. And hot air is a wonderful thing. I don't mean that as like fluff. It's, it doesn't cost anything to make it delicious. You just have to add the love and you have to have the ability to add something interestingness to the top. That's why they take the time to put the little clover leaf or the little heart thing on top. Unless they just do that for me. Do they make hearts on top of your ass? Then all of a sudden you have something that doesn't sell for a buck fifty, it sells for four dollars. Because you've included love. So you need to start figuring out how it is that you're able to add love to your channels. This means sharing things that you feel a little uncomfortable sharing with. Oh my God, someone's gonna take our idea. No, they're not. Plus, you're always six months out ahead of them. Even if they're gonna come in and copy your idea, you're better at it than they are. If you don't think that you can do this better than anyone else out there, then probably change your business, man. If you don't go in there with the confidence that nobody can do this better than I can, yeah, go get a job. <laughs> There's lots of other jobs out there. Y'all seem like smart, nice folks, right? So, you've got all this stuff on the internet, then every single person, without exception, who says anything about your company must be acknowledged, logged, responded to, etc. On my first week at Hootsuite, I, started a, um, I set up a media tracking dashboard, which is a fancy word for a bunch of RSS feeds going to a thing called NetVibes, also free. Um, I set up searches and tracked RSS feeds for everything I could find um, to track Hootsuite and all the permeations of Hootsuite. And this is the same thing I've done for several, several companies. And then, every time we see anything that says the word Hootsuite anywhere, and then it started to be in different languages too, they get a comment, then they get logged in a service like Delicious or Digo, and then uh, we do a news roundup blog post with a link back to him, and we put a track back into that, into that post, and then that, um, that Digo Delicious uh, media log thing then gets auto-tweeted out over an account called Hootwatch, and then we share that article ag again, and so like, we basically end up with five or six touch points and inbound links to their blog. This does two things. Um, one, um, people who write blogs, the currency of the internet is links. And if you can help people get more awareness, get more attention, get more love for their web presence, their blog or whatever it is that they got, they're going to be grateful. If they are grateful because you have given them five or six inbound links and all these high fives, and you're doing all of this publicly, by the way, Right? This isn't back channel logging. If you log things just for your own benefit, you're wasting fucking time. Right? Well, there's just some benefit to that. But by doing this completely publicly and sharing, giving these high fives, you're showing those people, you're making them look like the hero. 
You're shining the light on that. Look at that. They wrote that article. I've given you the gift of six inbound links. And you've modeled this behavior to other people who want that same thing. Right? So if uh, you know, someone else has a blog and say, oh, geez, if I write about Hootsuite, they're going to do that, that, and that for me. So you've acknowledged them, you've made them into the hero, and you've started to build this dossier, this library of stuff. Now, um, day one, I started this thing. Now there's probably 7,500 articles logged, probably. Any guesses? And it's all public. public. Every mention of Hootsuite in any kind of media blog, whatever, is logged, documented, and tagged. So if we need to know all the coverage about a specific release or all the coverage about us in Spanish, it's all tagged. It's all organized. And then you're able to get, send people down what I call a positive rabbit hole. What I mean by this is we got sales guys now at Hootsuite. We didn't used to back in the old days. It was such a simple time. And then monetization. We've got to make money from this whole thing. Blah, blah, blah. So we get sales guys. Sales guy on the phone. Blog, blog, blog. Synergy leverage. Buzzword, buzzword. Um, and then the customer says, well, how do you compare against this company? Well, they can go, well, our feature set stocks up and we blah, 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 blah. Do you know what's better? Send them a link that says, here's all, there's a tag within Digo that says comparison. Send them the link to that. And they can compare uh, your thing against TweetDeck or Radiant 6 or all the other companies without you telling them. And what does this mean? Well, the salesperson telling them, of course, he's going to say, well, it's, it's way better. We have things and columns and features and analytics and all that. But it's way more powerful for them to go out there and say, maybe, and maybe we're thinking one competitor, but this goes and shows them all these comparisons from third-party, slightly more neutral sources that also make your same argument for you. Right? And then they can go down there and they can find out, well, wh why is that? And why is it? And then it takes them down because there's 75 fucking hundred links in there, right? They can just go down and down and down. So then they're doing all their re own research. They're making their own buying decisions. They're coming back and saying, well, based on this, I'm ready to buy. Untapped is a great thing. That's how we met. For me, logging my beers, we angry Scotch ale. Yes, there's another one. 53rd time. I've checked this beer in. And then people look at me and go, you know, Dave really likes this craft beer, right? Oh, look at that. He drinks that one all the time. That's way more powerful than Russell going, yay, we angry Scotch ale. Look at us over here, right? So it's, you start to tap into other people's uh, networks. The good news is we do our job pretty well and there's not too many negative ones. Now, when someone, now you make a good point because when someone goes off the rails and there's a lot of, there's haters out there, right? I've dealt with this. As soon as you get successful, this is the fun part about it, being at marketing as an underdog. It's, it's, in a lot of ways, it's a lot funner than being kind of a top dog. But as soon as you're a big deal, people start taking shots at you all the time. So that stuff, there is stuff that we keep off the, off the record. A really good example of this is remember the, the Facebook research, right? Someone published some <clears throat> research um, saying that if you post to Facebook using Hootsuite, your interaction rates drop down. And they used, uh, they had a headline that says something about Facebook diminishes your edge rank score. They took our OWL, modified it, made a bar graph out of this. And they blow, blur, gets researched. And what they've done is they set up 200 zombie Facebook pages and posted crap to them. I said, oh, look, no one interacts. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock, you know? There's no presence, there's no culture, there's no meaning. Why would anyone interact? But then, because it's research and it has an infographic, which is the same tricks we use all the time, put an infographic, you know, put a chart and a graph, sure, people will believe it. Yeah, people believed it. And so we had, it was a, it was a kerfuffle because um, we didn't want to help this blow up, but it was also, it was bullshit research done by a company who was trying to sell edge rank Facebook marketing services. So they were trying to take us down. The funny thing is we performed better in their test than all the other ways to post, except for posting natively on Facebook. But we put us in the headline because it was provocative. Oh yeah, we'll take down the big dogs. We'll put them in the headline. So we down went and smacked them upside the f <laughs> fucking, fucking jerks. But all that is absolutely logged, documented. Every one of the, uh, <clears throat> I won't talk about the list of all the people who jumped on the intern bandwagon that will not be coming to my next birthday party. Fuckers. <laughs> but there are stuff that, but you've got to listen to everything. Now, so we're able to mobilize the community area. oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this is actually a good one. So let's dig into this a little bit more. So as soon as people talk shit about us on, on, the, uh, on the internet, and this goes with Hootsuite, but every other thing, you jump in there with a comment. Thanks for sharing your feedback. If they're dickheads and they're clearly just trying to stir shit up, you want to bring that conversation back to and use your um, home ice advantage. 
right? You don't want their forum and their blog to turn into the place where the discussion happens because that's what they want. They're talking shit because they want traffic and they want attention, they want the light shining on them. But as soon as you show up and show that you're paying attention, you're listening and you're not afraid of the scrap, you don't want to be, you don't want to be provocative and trying, but you let them know that you're listening and the whole tone in the conversation changes when people know that you're there and you're paying attention. It's, it's, uh, it's very important because then people realize that there is a vague sense of accountability about the things that they're writing about and that you're not going to let this stuff slide. You're not going to lay down. You're not so busy that you're not paying attention. Sometimes you know, people are constantly surprised that they'd say something about who's and bam, two minutes later, there's a comment on the thing. There's a tweet. There's a, like, whoa, shit, I didn't actually realize there's people with arms and legs paying attention on, on the thing. I thought you were just made by robots somewhere in the North Pole. You know, like they, f- they forget that connection, but the conversation stays more civil if you show up and make sure there's a comment on there. Now, a lot of the times I keep the comments really light. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for contributing to our culture. Um, thanks for your feedback. We also have a place here, blam, link, where you can share this kind of stuff. Um, we've responded to this over here. So this is pulling the, the, that conversation somewhere where you have, it's like home ice advantage, right? You have a little bit of an, uh, have an upper hand on that. Um, then when we do these news roundups, so we've taken all these articles, we've logged them. The news roundups, it's another thing that happens with those, is we would commingle, um, you know, Bob's blog with Mashable, with Wall Street Journal, with, you know, Grandma Mary makes a video show about social media tools. It's the truth. Um, and we'd commingle all of them. And then those people feel like superstars, right? They feel like so important. So next time when someone starts talking shit about us, like uh, the Facebook thing, those people are more apt to jump into the fray and defend us or talk about what they found with our tool without us even asking them because they know that A, we're paying attention, B, we're gonna shine the light on them, we appreciate it, and we're there paying attention, and we've done nice things for them, and this quid pro quo happens organically. You don't have to ask people if you've done this right. Like if you've done this right, you don't have to go out there and say, come on community, would you come help us defend this? And I've never had to go out there and ask people, would you come help uh, defend us? It happens organically. (laughs) Okay, three to four touch points for an article. Um, Hashtags, okay, so um, hashtags, three years ago hashtags were like, what are hashtags? Now it's like every one of those TV shows, they have hashtags and hashtag, hashtag. Okay, uh, what they are really handy for, and it's worth noting that Twitter um, the, two of the major innovations, if not two of the ma- majorest innovations in Twitter, really came out of the community. Those were uh, retweets, the concept of retweets, and the concept of <laughs> hashtags. Um, Twitter was, a, you know, it was almost an accident for them. The guys were working on audio. They came on the thing. Okay, it's an SMS tool, so we can all get together with our friends. You know, most of the software tools that have revolutionized the last ten years were geeks trying to get laid. Um, Facebook, check. Twitter, check. Right. Uh, Foursquare, triple check. Um, Instagram, take picture of yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, Twitter, <laughs> Twitter was no except. Let's all get together, and we're all having. Um, and and if you work in tech industry, like imagine imagine your your two hundred thousand dollar a year job in Silicon Valley. What do you spend that money on? Hanging out with a bunch of dudes at TGI Fridays, you know. So <laughs> they they have to find some way to bring bring some diversity into that mix. But um, with those tools. Um, Realize that anyone who, and, and, and myself included, like all of this will change in the next five years. So the part about the importance of the psychology about building these relationships and responding and interacting is way more important in a lot of ways than the ways we do it right now. Because three years from now, it would be totally different. Three years ago, hashtags didn't really exist. Right now, hashtag, everything's going to have a hashtag. The reason hashtags are handy for us and, and they're super easy to use. One, they can help categorize your stuff. Right? So we use tags for all kinds of things at Hootsuite with like categorizing news articles, but also for campaigns. But also it gives another way to run down a po- one of these positive rabbit holes. So when you hashtag, uh, you know, Hootup, oh, what's a Hootup? Well, we could try to define it for everyone. Instead, they can click on the thing and they say, oh, geez, I see all these pictures from Indonesia and Orkutsk, Siberia and, and Bogota of these people getting together wearing owl masks. That must have something to do with it, right? So it allows them to go on discovery. And discovery is incredibly important to all this stuff, right? It used to be about search. Oh my God, I have the entire wealth of the human knowledge available for me. I just need to decide what to search for. And you think about it and you think of, well, what am I really interested in? What, what do I really care about? Um, hmm. Uh, let's see. Hmm. Well, I like hockey. Uh, I could search for that, but I already see everything I want to. 
And so you kind of stall out when this unlimited possibilities. But going down on this discovery path, wow, I didn't realize so many people were into 18th century Russian literature as I am. I never even thought to search for that, right? Maybe not the best example. All right, all right. But your mama did tell you that you're one in a million. So that means there's 30 people just like you in Canada, no 300 in the States. Find those people. That's your posse. That's your cult right there, right? And these hashtags and these things and this sense of discovery allows you to start to find these people and the things that hitherto you didn't really quite realize that you wanted to learn about, you know? How is, how is vodka made? Well, is it made by potatoes? Why is it made by grain now? But that's, just not, that's not something you necessarily search for. But then you kind of come and like, I found this distillery and oh, I've got these questions. Well, if, if they use artisan local ingredients, what are other people using? How is this done? What's really the history? Is that just from right? Ah, it's so exciting. Because that discovery, and it's the things that we don't really know that we care about yet. It's like walking around, whenever I go to a new town, the first thing I do is look at all the handbills and flyers on, on poles and then get the local alternative news weekly kind of thing to start discovering and poking around and seeing what catches my attention. It's not like I go to a town and be like, well, I know exactly what I want to do. No, I want to get a thing that allows me to discover and go down these positive rabbit holes. Roller derby, who would have thought that was so fun? Pillow fights at the Astoria? That sounds ridiculous. <clears throat> All right, so sum up on this one. You start your story, it is your own vision, you listen to vocabulary from your, your peers and advisors, but stay true to your own kernel of truth that you know to be true. And then you triangulate that with the information you can get from the widely available internet. You codify this into a media kit with your logos, five, 25, you know, all your different descriptions, all the information you can put in one place. And then you start reaching out and sharing that to people and encourage them and planting the seeds of your first 50, 100 fans who are going to be your cult for life because you're going to treat them like solid fucking gold. And you're going to get to know everything about them. You're not just going to take that tweet. Oh, someone sent me a tweet. Great. Whatever. I'm such a big deal, right? No, you're going to find out who they are and what their motivation is for participating in your culture. If someone's written a blog post or someone's taken the time to analyze their thing or share some feedback, what is their point of view? You'll find some people who are haters, like um, there's this dick from uh, Sprout Social. Um, whose whole Twitter feed was just filled up with, not happy with Hootsuite, come try this, right? And it's like, Dur, I know how you're doing your job, dude. Like, really? That's your, that's your whole marketing message is we're, we'll find disgruntled Hootsuite users and try to sell them on our thing? Wow, that's really, really weak, dude. And you call them out on that shit, dude. You get to know, you figure out who's the people that really care about this, that you're really helping. You reach out to them and you're going to get the most ridiculously amazing stories from people who your tool and your product has really changed their life or impacted them in some positive way. These are your super fans and they are to be treated with gold, like gold. Then from day one, you log and respond and participate with every time someone takes the time to mention your brand because that, that's like, that's manna from heaven. So many companies and so many projects suffer from obscurity and they can't possibly get people to give a shit about what it is that they're doing because they can't differentiate themselves, but they're also not making it easy to talk about what it is that you're doing. Okay, so uh, questions on that part there before we get into the yellow belt. <coughs> ah, that's right. I have a question. Oh, good. How do you, how do you release the control to let other people have conversations with your, with your like, that is not just one person um, talking to the audience, which is what Hootsuite is all about, that you can have multiple people talking to multiple, yeah. multiple. So, I guess it's, it's more of a question for me, how do That's I great. do that, but I guess, uh, how, I guess it comes down to having the right story, having the right messages, and hiring well, so that people are talking with common sense. So let's talk about the story part of that first. What are the elements of a story? You have characters, some sense of conflict or transition, because conflict is such a big, like, oh, something terrible has to happen. We don't want something to happen, but we have to have a transition. We have characters in transition that are doing on some interesting quest. Act one, everything's going along normally. Act two, we set off on an adventure. Step three, it turns out completely different, but more wonderful than we could have possibly imagined, right? So you need to start with characters. Now, fortunately, in your business, as a, uh, in a brewing business, you have great characters. Your characters are your brewers, your beer nerds, who, who are like the, those, like I'm, I'm not one of the, like I'm a, I'm a craft beer enthusiast, but I refuse to be one of those people that takes classes about beer sampling because all those guys become the <laughs> fucking dicks to drink beer with. Nothing is fucking good enough, right? 
Oh, you f I can taste a little diethamine sulfide in it. Yes. What? Yes. <laughs> oh, this is the beer snob beer key. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you have your characters, right? So you got your brewers, you got your beer nerds, and you have this journey that you're doing of creating new things, right? So the, all the classic elements are already there. So what you need to do is internally you have to convince people this is not a waste of their time, and you do this by making it fun. Yeah. And you this is the Tom Sawyer model, right? So the story is that Tom Sawyer had got in trouble. He had to whitewash the fence. He's there whitewashing the fence. His buddies roll by, and they're like, Ah, Tom, we're going fishing, yo. you got to paint the fence. He's like, hey, guys, could I try to paint the fence here? Well, dude, we're going fishing. <sighs> I'm trying to do a little bit of art over here. So if you guys would get the hell out of my way, go fishing, do whatever you're doing, I'm going to stay here and paint the fence. Ah, Tom, you know, uh, it does look kind of fun. No, 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 no. Don't even, don't even ask. You can't do this. No, you're clearly not qualified to send a tweet. I mean, paint the fence. Uh, uh, well, you know, Tom, uh, I, I really think I could do this. All right, well, this gives you a little bit of training. You're going to have to go up and down. You've got to put the brush in here. So you're going to have to open up the Hootsuite, and you're going to have to type. Now, it's only 140 characters, which, unless you're writing in Chinese, doesn't give you a lot of space. Chinese, that's a novella. Um, so then they go in there, and they paint the guy comes in and paints the first board. Tom, all right, that's pretty good. I think you might be able to, I'm going to allow you to paint another one. Go ahead and send another tweet. And then the other folks come by and say, wow, that looks like a lot of fun that you're doing. He's, you totally let him do it. Why can't I do it? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But I get, okay, I'll tell you what. He's going to finish another two or three boards, and then I'm going to let you paint a couple. And so by the end of it, Tom's not even doing any of the work. He's got everyone else doing the work for you. So that's what you've got to do inside the brewery. You've got to find the beer geeks. You find the people with the interesting stories. And then you have to put the kernel of excitement into them. You have to inspire them to do it. And then you also give them constraints, which seems a little counterintuitive to creativity. But creativity is fostered by constraints. The 140 is a constraint. But you give them a topic. You know, Brewer Doug, I bet you there would be a great idea here if you shared about the, you know, people are always asking me about the different kinds of hops. And I don't fucking know any of that stuff, you know. Wouldn't you tell the story about the, the hops? Why, I tell you what, every Monday, you write a couple words about what's the difference between cascade hops or those hops and that hops. And so you give constraints. They only have one topic to write about, and they have 140 characters to do it. And it's something that the beer nerds out there, your audience, will respond to because inside baseball, but it's not so obscure that it's like, oh, my God, the wort and the temperature and the boiling point and all the mechanical stuff. It's something they can get their head around. And then you know what they get to do? They get to go, you know the difference of... Uh, you know, just the, you know, the Yakima Valley hops are much different than the Cascade hops. So they get to be like the rock star in front of their friends because you've given them that little kernel of information. So you give them constraints, you give them a timeline, you give them specific examples, and you make it look like you have the fucking funnest job on the planet. And then what happens is as soon as they send out, start sending out these tweets, the audience breathes life into their tweets. And you send out that tweet about the well, you know, these hops, blah, blah, blah. And then all the other beer geeks, you know, and then camera retweets it. And then the other, then pint size retweets it if you're super lucky. <laughs> and then the thirsty writer does an article. And then you've got all this stuff. And then it becomes a series. And then it becomes like, oh, my goodness, I'm, people are expecting me to write about hops every Monday. And you totally Tom Sawyer them into it. Um, I guess um, just no tweeting maybe when you're super drunk. That's my name. <laughs> I think that rule's overrated, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's why I took control. Well, this is... There's a, yes. Well, there is a great story about this. There's liability there. Yeah, yeah. I'm making a disclaimer. I have to go into the tweet. I'm super drunk right now. Well, <laughs> yeah. We, we, we did run into this problem, and it actually created a new, a new Hootsuite feature. So once upon a time, um, a young lady who worked for the... Uh, named Gloria, who works for the Red Cross, was out um, with her friends. And... Getting slizzard. <laughs> and she sends out a tweet saying, uh, dude found another four pack of dogfish head beer. Yay, yay. Hashtag getting slizzard. And she actually, uh, which is dogfish heads kind of like a little slogan or something. She misspelled the hashtag. And, you know, when she, you're out there at a bar talking about that, we just found more beer, it implies, yes. And so the whole thing that she was drunk was implied. The, the problem was that the, the, when she was sending it out um, on Hootsuite on her phone, she had um, the Red Cross account as well as her personal account and you know 
And it went out over the whole Red Cross uh, audience, who are a bunch of sensitive, concerned people. Oh my God, world disasters. And so everyone was like, oh my God, Red Cross, did you know? Blah, blah, blah. So young uh, Gloria wakes up the next day in with a, a, possibly a bit of a hangover and realized she started this whole social media kerfuffle. The Red Cross handled it very, very elegantly. They sent out a tweet saying, don't worry, everything's fine here. We've taken away the keys, something, something. They wrote a blog post saying, we deal with real, capital D, human disasters every day. This was a human error. Um, get over it, which was brilliant. And then we chimed in, and all this happened in about a half an hour span, right? One morning I walk in, holy shit. So we sent out, what do we do? We sent out a tweet saying, um, uh, hey, Red Cross, we're making a donation, and here's a beer koozie that we're sending to Gloria. And we took a picture of a Hootsuite beer koozie, and, and then Dogfish Hen, we reached out to Dogfish Hen and said, what's the fuck with you guys using TweetDeck? Why don't you come on board? And by the way, we should all give money to Red Cross and show social media can be used for good. They donated some money, they told their audience. Within half an hour, we had bars from Australia to Austin, Texas, saying if you come and give a pint of blood, we'll give you a pint of beer. And then Red Cross chimes in and said, well, you should make sure you have a cookie in between those two activities. And by three, <laughs> by three o'clock that afternoon, Red Cross's servers had, had, had crashed because of all the volume. And they, it ended up raising huge amounts of money for them because everyone got on this groundswell and said, well, we want to make sure that people, you know, they're not vilified and they're going to lose their job. So there was a passionate thing because everyone who uses social media go, oh, fuck, I've totally, I've totally done that. Here's my pint of blood. Here's my 10 bucks or whatever, right? And it turned into a wonderful thing. It was like, oh, no, now everyone's going to do that. And now you actually have companies that fake being hacked after Burger King's account got compromised. Um, MTV staged a hack on their account. And they did it without, and they're a client, and they did it without telling our account manager. And our account manager's like, oh my God, something's gone terribly wrong. We better go on the phone with them. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at this. They sent out a tweet 10 minutes before their hack saying, make sure to be paying attention to our Twitter feed. You know, um, so that's super chessy. So don't tempt disaster like that. That same week, the guy who worked for a PR agency who was representing Chrysler also had a mistweet. I find it ironic that Detroit's called the Motor City because people here don't know how to fucking drive. And he sent that over the Chrysler account. Fortunately, Chrysler and the, and the US auto industry are in great shape. They have no PR concerns. The industry is vibrant. No problems there. And Chrysler went, oh my god, suspended the agency who fired that guy and crawled into a shell of which they maybe started to emerge from now. But they completely shut down and just like, no, no comment, no anything. So the guy who sent the mistweet uh, blamed him on TweetDeck. The funny thing is it, was, it had been sent through Twitter native web on his phone. <laughs> it was like, okay, take a, take a cheap shot at TweetDeck. <laughs> School with us. And uh, that happened on a Thursday. The next Tuesday, we released a feature in Hootsuite, which is the secure profiles, which is a double confirmation step for certain accounts. So you can have certain accounts that have this setting on them. So you have to do a double confirmation to prevent drunk tweets. Um, and we, but we only sell that with the enterprise package, and it's a little tiny little feature, but that is such a huge motivator for people to pay significantly more money for the enterprise thing just to avoid that potential embarrassment of the mistweet. So tweeting drunk isn't always bad, but yes, it should be, uh, you know. The other thing that's a great idea to do is especially around events like, uh, you know, so, you know, Sons of Vancouver, they're doing their opening night. You're at a, doing a tasting at a bar, something, something, something. You got, you're having a few bevvies. Um, you want to keep the attention, the in, engagement going for your event and letting people know that you're down here. Come on down and see us. But you also don't want to be that one when you're like, oh, yeah, sorry, I'd be talking to you, but I'm super busy tweeting right now. <laughs> and you've had, you know, a few bevvies at this point and you're messing it up. You do your hashtag wrong. So you put that, do that shit ahead of time and schedule it. Like, there's tweets going out from my account right now because it's all done by robots because I'm not here uh, tweeting, right? So don't be afraid to, to schedule things. There's a lot of blowhards out there that say scheduling is, you know, contrary to the spirit of social media. You have to be human and all that. That's bullshit, man. You know, like, this stuff didn't exist a couple years ago. So anyone who comes out and says this is the way you have to do it, no, I don't. Where's the rules? What do I have to? How come? What for? Just because you were an early adopter and have a big audience and you demand that... You know, like, it's, it's ridiculous. So you figure out your own path and your own way to inject social throughout your company. But I'm a big enthusiast, obviously, of spreading social throughout your company, but having some modicum of control over it. And, but if you put a purpose behind that account and the parameters and the constraints, then it's far more powerful. Plus, you want to encourage people around your company to uh, have their own accounts and be participating. Um, at Hootsuite, I started a tradition, you know, because I have a personal Twitter handle, Uncle Weed, but that wasn't really appropriate for Hootsuite. So on day one, I also started Devo Hoots. Um, and, uh, and now everyone joins Hootsuite. They come up with, for the most part, they have, especially the sales folks, have some 
something something hoots or hoot something to identify that this is my work thing. And what the great thing about that is, is we send out a story and we have this instant posse internally that can also jump in to seed that thing so it seeds it far faster. So, um, you know, uh, encourage your brewmaster and say, you know what I've done here, brewmaster, is I've set up your own Twitter account and every Monday or so, why don't you come by and we're going to schedule out a few tweets. Just tell me what you're working on. And I'll pop down, I'll take some pictures and we'll send them out. And then you're going to turn him or her into a celebrity. And there's a lot of these brewers now that become rock stars in town. You know, like I get all giddy. I'm like, oh my god. You know, <laughs> there's Conrad. There's Gary Lowen. Oh, do you think you like me? Oh, Tariq Khan. Oh my god. Right? They become they become uh, super champions. Right? And if you kind of build up their reputation, everyone loves. Well, most people like the attention, especially professional accolades more than attention. Some people might be shy, but if someone's saying, "Wow, I really like what you did here," and they meet their peers, then all of a sudden, social media becomes relevant for them, and they want to engage without you having to be like, um, you know, using a carrot rather than a stick. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Okay. Can I take two minutes, and then we're going to jump into more about listening? Cool with you guys? These coffees are starting to, you know, pile up a little bit. Okay. Here, I'll put on a little flaming lips for you while I'm doing that. You guys holding up all right? Good? All right. There you have it, the first installment of Social Marketing Kung Fu. In reality, this wasn't the first part, but the first part, which I set the whole thing up and gave a grand, wide picture view of everything about Social Marketing Kung Fu, is lost on some hard drive somewhere. So part two or something becomes part one. But who's counting? The information is still relevant, I hope. But I will tell you that there's more of this goodness at devostory.com, including a few more installations of social marketing kung fu, as well as all sorts of other interviews, articles, uh, soliloquies relating to this kind of marketing community, startup, businessy, communications, public relations, media relations kind of stuff devilstory.com. And also, I'm curious to hear what you're up to. If you found any of this useful or beneficial, do you have any other tips? No big deal, right? You know, like I'm not doing this for a job. I'm doing this for the goodness of humankind. You can send me an email to gravelybeach at gmail.com. G-R-A-V-E-L-L-Y beach at gmail.com. Carry on with several more installments of Social Marketing Kung Fu. Fondly, comma Dave.